Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is March the 14th, 2017, and this is episode 1966 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Tuesday, which is usually a Just Jack show, and it will be a Just Jack show, but it's usually on a subject... But since I did a rewind yesterday, I'm doing a listener feedback show today because the questions are just stacking up and I need to address some of them on the air. If you want to send a question for a show like today, send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and make sure the initials TSPC, all like their one word, is in the subject line and then question for Jack, comment for Jack, whatever, and uh, it'll get screened for this show. And that's a good idea. Whenever you send me anything show-related, if you put TSPC in the subject line, it helps me dig it out of the spam box and things like that. Um, come to think of it, I haven't dug stuff out of the spam box in like a week. This is going to suck when I do it later today. But uh, eventually I do get around to doing that and find your stuff that gets in there. So uh, good idea as always. Remember the format to most likely get through the screening. Do the bottom line up front thing. Your question, your comment, your concern, your comment on your link. One sentence at the top, then your link, or you know, if you don't have a link, don't worry about a link, and then your details. If you do that, I'll be a lot more likely to uh, to get through when I'm screening to pull yours aside for further screening because I kind of do a quick screen and then a depth in depth screen as I as I pick my stuff for you know the show each week. I only do one show like this a week. I pick maybe ten emails. I get a few hundred, so uh, it's 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 tough enough to get on the air. But if you follow the format, your odds go up like ninety percent because a lot of people. Don't I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, what are we going to talk about this uh, day? We're going to talk about the fact that apparently in New York now, you can be not literate and still be a teacher because testing you to see if you're literate to make you a teacher is racist. No, I'm not kidding. Uh, why prepping the wrong way leads to falling out and being unprepared? Textbook case of this. Textbook case of this. Um, restore or leave aged old sentimental guns. You got that old Parker double barrel from your granddaddy or something like that. Should you have it restored or should you leave it the way that it is? Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Well, on guns as well, long-term storage of guns. You're going to put the gun away for a couple of years without touching it. What do you do? I'll give you some advice on that, though it's not really the big deal that some people make it out to be. Preparedness for snowbirds or anyone who lives seasonally. We live here this part of the year and here that part of the year. It's a little bit more complicated. Thoughts on dome homes, geodesic domes and things like that. I'll give you some thoughts on that. Developing seed mixes for your property. Uh, mono versus braid with a leader for fishing. I had a fishing question. I like those. And being prepared will pay off for a listener and his family. I'll tell you all about that. Basic preparedness, it kind of screams counter. It screams counter to the prepping the wrong way and falling out story that we'll have as our second story today. Before we get into all that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasonings, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. 
TSPBusiness.com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out TSPBiz.com, that's TSPBiz.com, to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. 1966 is the year because the episode is 1966. Alex Shrugged has two for us today, and Southpaw Ben has one. We have Mao's Cultural Revolution is the End of Culture by Alex Shrugged. Tarsus Leaves the USSR by Southpaw Ben. And Time Magazine asks, Is God Dead? Contributed by Alex Shrugged. Noble births this year, David Cameron, Matt Drudge, Cindy Crawford, Shimuli Butayak, Orthodox rabbi, TV host, and author of Kosher Sex, a reasonable book, according to Alex Shrugged. In music, Janet Jackson. In comedy, Fred Armisen of Saturday Night Live. In sports, Mike Tyson and Troy Aikman are born this year. In movies, Adam Sandler, Kiefer Sutherland, and J.J. Abrams, director of the Star Trek reboot. I think Kiefer Sutherland's a great actor. I don't know what he's like as a person, but I, I think he's a good actor. The Bible in the beginning was in this year in film, from Adam to Eve to the Binding of Isaac. Fantastic Voyage was released this year. Miniaturized scientists travel through the human body to the trouble with angels. It was another great movie from this year. Teenage girls are sent to Catholic boarding school. Comedy ensues. And How the Grinch Stole Christmas, narrated by Boris Karloff. So... In 1964, 65, and 66, we have the release of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, A Charlie Brown Christmas, and The Grinch That Stole Christmas. This is the dawn of the great Christmas classic you know, cartoons. In TV this year, Star Trek begins as sci-fi, soon becomes unreal. Uh, Batman, a campy version of the dark comic book character. I think one of the greatest moments in television history for just absurdity is the episode of the original Batman where he has the bomb and he's running around with it and he can't throw it anywhere because like baby ducks in the water and stuff. It's just so preposterous. I'll see if I can find it on YouTube and put a link to it for you in the show notes if you haven't seen it. Oh, and I remember watching that as a little kid. Doctor Who, uh, the 700 Club, all of those start this year. This year in music, Strangers in the Night from Frank Sinatra, amazing song. Good Vibrations from the Beach Boys and the Beatles Dominate with We Can Work It Out, Yellow Submarine, and Paperback Rider. Anyway, let's take a look at Mao's Cultural Revolution as the End of Culture because this is a very dark piece of history that I, a lot of young people today just don't seem to freaking get. They think, oh, Mao is pretty cool. Um, Mao Zedong has become increasingly paranoid, but even paranoids do have enemies. Mao's the chairman of Red China. He's trying to modernize his country, but he's doing it by killing off all the people he doesn't like. The current tally is running into the millions. At this point, figure 45 million. As you can imagine, his subordinates are nervous. Will they be next? Yes, Mao is deeply suspicious of four members of the Politburo and has them arrested for treason. They admit it because, I'm not sure why, but my sense is they were so beaten down they see no point in going on. Mao is freaking out. He only wants the most trusted around him, so he starts a purge. It's called the Cultural Revolution. But it's not a promotion of culture. It's a revolution against culture, and it begins at the schools. He accuses teachers of filling students' heads with culture that will destroy Chairman Mao. He also makes exams illegal and hands out free food to the students. It's a riot. Teachers are dragged out and beaten. Women are raped, even at the middle schools. The kids are ready to fight to save Mao. 
This didn't happen all at once. He has been building a cult of personality aimed at young people. It's now paying off, for Mao anyway. My take by Alex Shrug. Some people suggest that Mao was reasserting his power with the purge. A dictator cannot ex exercise his power with subordinates that will not carry out his orders, so he attacked them to bring them back in a line. When President Obama took office, I was worried that he was a Mao wannabe. He surrounded himself with political radicals, like his communications direction, uh, director, Anita Dunn, who praised Mao, and Ron Bloom, who said he agreed with Mao that power came from the barrel of a gun. And it wasn't, and wasn't there a Mao Christmas ornament on, on the White House tree? I was also freaked out when little kids started singing songs about Obama, just like for Mao. I was worried, but I wouldn't have to worry so much if the president, any president of any party, didn't have so much power. So when I call for limiting power of the presidency, it's not because I distrust the current president, it's because I might tr not trust the next president who will have the same power. Indeed. I, I just expand that from president to government to state. I look at it that way, like, people freak out when so-and-so gets a cabinet position, or so-and-so gets elected as governor of a state, or so-and-so gets elected as a freaking senator, one of a hundred, or as a, a member of the House, one of over 500. You know, I mean, if you are freaked out when anybody gets elected to any office, maybe you need to start looking at the system as the problem rather than the individual. It is, it is the, the height of arrogance to believe that which your side does is okay, but when the other side does it, it's not okay. It's either moral and upright and decent, or it's not. And like stealing people's property and putting people in prison is not decent, unless those people truly deserve to go to prison, for instance. For like possessing a plant or not paying Caesar his dues, this person does not deserve prison for shooting somebody or raping somebody or killing somebody, a crime with an actual victim, well then, yeah, we can talk about things like some way to pay that debt back to society or, better yet, the person they victimized, just saying. But this is something that people struggle with so much. And I think the other problem that people have, and this is a problem maybe even kind of expressed with the concerns of Alex in this segment, is that they think the next Mao will look like the last Mao. See, the problem is the people of this country do not recognize the form of tyranny that sits in front of them because they've been lied to about what socialism is and about what fascism is and a complex understanding that they're really the same thing with different marketing. And what you have today is neo-fascism. You have neo-fascism today. Classic fascism, the government says the industry, you can make as much money as you want, but we'll hand out, dole out, and, and control how you do it, who gets what, etc. In neo-fascism, the, the corporations, the corporatocracy, the plutocracy, is handing the money to government in the form of lobbyists. And it simply switches the, the hands around it, who is to really in control. And you, we are led by oligarchs, plutocrats, and technocrats in this country today. That's, that's who's in charge. Your congressman, your senator, your president, etc., are all just vehicles by which these other people control things. And they figured out they don't need to kill a bunch of people. They can create situations that cause people to kill each other. It's much cleaner for them. They don't have to kill a bunch of people and put them in concentration camps. They can create a prison system and leverage their labor in a way that the average person thinks is okay because they're bad people. See, the problem with neo-fascism versus classic fascism or classic communism <clears throat> is that it, it's, it's more effective at the state being able to control the people. 
It's far more nuanced. It's far more sophisticated. It's far better at keeping people slaves and creating slaves who police themselves. And it really doesn't matter if it's Obama. It really doesn't matter if it's Trump. It really doesn't matter if it's Bush. Because in the end, the system will not change. And you might look at a lot of things that Trump's doing right now and think, those are good things or those are bad things, depending on your opinion. And I think some of those things are good things for the country as a whole. But I know the underlying system of control is not going to change. The way by which we will leverage to create our own freedom within it is simply what changes. And when somebody does something that I say is good, what I mean is they've given us another opportunity to leverage for our own freedom when we exist in a system of control. That's what I mean. My take by Jack Spierko. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, let's get into uh, our first um uh, story of the day. This comes from Brandon. Brandon uh, sends this to me. It says, this is an example of, of the racism of low expectations. New York dropping teacher literacy test amid claims of racism. Yeah, I mean, this almost sounds like it's from The Onion. But it, but it doesn't because I'm so used to stuff like this. Um At a time when the United States has plummeted in the global rankings of education standards, one of the country's largest states is poised to scrap a test designed to measure the reading and writing skills of people trying to become teachers. Citing the fact that an outsized percentage of black and Hispanic candidates were failing the test, members of the New York State Board of Regents plans to adopt a task force's recommendation to eliminate, eliminate the literacy exam known as Academic Literary Skills Test, given to prospective teachers. The move to do away with the test has been met with mixed reviews. Supporters of the exam say that eliminating it could put weak teachers in the classroom, while critics argue the test is confusing, redundant, and a poor predictor of who will succeed as a teacher. Well, I'm just going to stop. You want to read this article, you read the rest of the article. This is a test to determine if a teacher can read and write effectively. That's what it is. And what they're saying is because people that maybe don't have English as their first language or were brought up speaking improper English, I guess that's what their connotation is, will be more likely to fail the test itself as racist. Government schools is the problem. State control of education is the problem. Can you imagine... The state has the authority to tell you that a teacher who's going to teach your child to read and write can be incompetent enough to fail a test on doing it themselves. And you have to shut up and send your kid to that school. And if you don't, you can be arrested or worse. 
And you think you're free? And you think the stuff I was telling you about a neo-fascist state was just Jack being crazy? Do you get this? This isn't just about incompetence. This isn't just about political correctness run amok. This is about the force of the state. See, let me tell you something about the, the thing from Chairman Mao saying that, 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 that force comes from the barrel of a gun. He's not wrong. Power comes from the barrel of a gun. And your state, your government, knows it just as much as Chairman Mao. They may use that gun barrel differently, but trust me, it's the gun that gets things done in this country. It is the fact that if you do not comply with what you're told to comply with, even if you find it ridiculous, immoral, or reprehensible, that men with guns will come to your house and take you away. And you can't tell me that's not the case. And you might say, well, I think some of our laws are good laws. Then you would obey them anyway without somebody putting a gun in your face now, wouldn't you? But those of you that think it's patriotic to pay your taxes so that we can have schools, let me ask you a question. If the taxes were actually voluntary... Would you still pay them? And I think most of you that would say yes are liars. You're liars. Because if you looked at the way these schools are being run and thought, that's what they're going to do with my money, that's what they're going to do with my money. And let me tell you something. This makes me think way, way, way back to when I was in second grade in Jacksonville, Florida. And I had a teacher... And this is not racist, but the fact is, yes, she was black. No, she couldn't speak coherently in a sentence. Everything was slang. Everything was improper. Everything was wrong. Even as a second grader, I knew this woman couldn't speak English properly. Okay? And she's teaching English. And this is how I ended up in Catholic school. Because I told my parents... My teacher can't talk properly. And they thought I was just being a, you know, a kid. Until they decided to go talk to her. And when they found out there was no way to get me out of her class and no way to find, uh, get me out of that school, they transferred me to a private school, a Catholic school. Unfortunately, back then it was pretty inexpensive to do if you went to, you know, a, a Catholic school run by a church. It wasn't very expensive back then. Because they had a teacher that couldn't speak properly. And I know they exist. Because I've seen videos of them talking in the front of classrooms. Let me tell you something. If you're going to teach children English, you should be able to speak English properly. And that doesn't mean that you never use a slang term or something like that. Because here's one of my things with purists of the English language. Every time you say, well, that's not a word, every word in modern English was not a word at one point. It became a word, word through cultural acceptance. But you guys know what I'm talking about. And I'm telling you, if people are failing a literacy test because they're Hispanic or black, they're probably not literate enough to be teaching children in schools. But that's racist. And there's some of you now that are even going, I think the concept that the test is racist is wrong, but the way Jack is phrasing it does sound racist. That's because they've gotten in your freaking head. That's, because I don't care if you're white and you can't pass this test. Because I've met white people that can't speak proper English, plenty of them. That, that, that talk, talk like some kind of freaking gangster or something like that and just manipulate words into things that don't make any sense at all. I don't care what color you are. See, a test can't be racist. The test doesn't say, I'm going to score you differently based on how you fill out the race bubble. The test 
reports accurately your ability or inability to master the subject matter at hand. But again, people that think we should fix this, when you think fix it by, you know, make sure that test stays in place, do this, do that, talk to the school board, you don't get the problem. This is the natural way that government schools will end up. Because government seeks to level the playing field by dragging people down to the lowest common denominator, even though they don't know what the word common denominator means anymore. Government does this in any institution of any size. If any group is disproportionately affected, there's a problem, which is obscene. Now that means that they need to do a better job of teaching that group of people so that they can meet the standard. But you know how this all goes away? You remove the mandate for public education in America. You want to have public education? Fine. You remove the mandate. And people that use it have to pay for it. I don't pay for your kid to go to school. You pay for your kid to go to school. And you let them have the public option, right? And you, you go with it. And you let parents decide how their children will be educated. You know what if they did what, what I've suggested as a solution within the system? Right now, public education would be dead in, in 10 years flat. Completely gone. It would be eradicated. And that is simply that whatever your, your, your district spends, spends on your student per year, let's say it's $10,000, if you pull your kid out, you get 60% of the money, so $6,000, to fund their education in any manner you see fit. And no, you can't put them in a cellar and have them sewing wallets in a sweatshop and get your money. No, you have to take some sort of an educational, homeschooling, private schooling, whatever. Now what people say, but it takes money out of public education. That's because you, you went to public school, government school, and you can't do freaking math. If I have 10 students getting $10,000 each, I have $100,000 in the pool. So $10,000 a student. See, it's easy. The metric system by 10s is easy. Okay, But if I take half of those students out, I take $60,000, I'm sorry, I take $50,000, I'm sorry, I'm messing up my own thing. Ten students out, I take 60% of that $50,000 that they're being having spent on them. That's $30,000 out of the system. And see, that's never, oh, they took $30,000 in public education. Hey. You gotta do the rest of the math. You can't just do the part of the math you wanna do. That's common core. We're left with $70,000 for five students. And what that means is those five students now have $14,000 each that the state has to educate them with. The, the, the amount of money available per student goes up with a voucher system. Not down, up. And anything less than 100%, it could be 90%, it still goes up per student. And if you ask anybody in an administration of government schools, would you be able to do a better job if you had more dollars per student? They would say yes. But if you propose this, oh, no, that's the end of it. You know why? Because it is the end. Because they know as soon as parents have a choice, it's over. But only the worst will be left behind. So you'll have a shitload of money per student. You went, well, then they'll start taking some of the money away. Sure, because you'll reach a point where it's unreasonable the amount you're spending per student, and you'll have to get by with it. And sooner or later, the whole thing would fall apart. Why? Because the private market does a better job. And if people had the funding available, that's, and again, 
I know, we're still stealing money for taxes. I get it. But they're spending the money anyway. But if you think you're going to fix government schools, I'm promising you this. They will only get worse from here. And if you don't think it's the case, they've only gotten worse over the last hundred years. Why do you think it's going to change now? It's not. Let's take another one. So this one comes from Chris. Chris says, read below, curious to hear your thoughts. And it goes to U.S. Crisis Preppers. Um, a post made February 23rd, 2017. It's called, Why We're Giving Up Prepping. Before I read this to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain to you something I said so often in the early days of the show that I probably should continue to say more of. When you get into preparedness as a lifestyle, you don't do it from a point of fear. You don't fill up your garage with cases of MREs, and you don't prepare for the apocalypse and the end of the world as we know it. You prepare for the basic things that go wrong in your life all the time, and you start out with, with a viewpoint of this. The, the lower the number of people affected by a disaster, the greater the potential is that you personally will experience it in the next five years. Meaning, if you get hit with a job loss, it affects one person directly and some you know, family members indirectly. So it's really a one-person disaster. But you probably know thousands of people or hundreds of people or dozens of people, depending on how many people you know, who have lost jobs. You yourself have probably lost a job in your life at some point, unless you're fortunate and have never done so. But I would bet that if you made a list of 10 people, half of them have lost a job. It's a pretty high probability that it can happen. It's happened to me. And I'm damn good at what I do. And I always have been. Almost every friend I have at one point or another has lost a job. So it's a high probability. So we start from that standpoint. And then we say, well, what else could happen? And we say, well, I don't know, localized weather event that affects like my neighborhood, like rips the roofs off of buildings and stuff. Or localized power outage or something. It's just, uh, okay, then we prepare for that. And if we take that approach... Eventually, we're as prepared as you would ever really be for like the end of the world as we know it anyway, which you can never really be prepared for. Because you're going to have to adapt to any kind of situation. If you get into kind of that kind of uh, catastrophic failure, I don't care how much shit you have stored up, you're going to have to adapt in ways you can't even imagine. And you're going to have to use other people. You're not going to be able to form your little camp with your 20 people and sit out on the sidelines while the world ends and burns, and you're going to be just fine. It just doesn't work that way. And then if you come at prepping, from the standpoint of preparing for the end of the world as we know it, instead of this logical, methodical process that I call based on the probability of disaster, okay? Unless you do that, eventually you'll resent what you're doing and you'll fall out and you'll become less prepared than the neighbor who's unprepared that you used to mock. Now, if you've listened a long time, you're going, I've heard Jack say that exact thing probably eight freaking years ago. Okay, let me read this to you. Why we're giving up prepping. Before we begin, this is no doubt a decisive article letter. I want to start off by thanking all of you for your support. Thomas and I have been truly lucky to have had your presence and encouragement over the years. I can't describe in words just how grateful we are to have such devoted re readership. Again, the blog is called U.S. Crisis Preppers. People live in Toronto. I guess the U.S. is a better market. I'm just saying, over the past three years, we have discussed the importance of prepping many times on more. Oh, real, real quick, the, the tagline, 2008, was just a warning. Be ready. Stay prepared. You, you understand where this is coming. And the, the, the videos and the advertising are all hype. All the big, you know, the world is going to end stuff and things like that. So let me go back. 
Over the past nearly three years, we have discussed the importance of prepping many times on more than just saving, surviving, and encouraging one and all to take up the cause out of desire to protect one's own personal future as well as the future of your families. Prepping, as we saw, it was a great boon and an excellent way to assure yourself a greater chance of survival. Well, in the past year, we've obviously been keeping quite a close eye on what's been happening in the news. The world has been living through turbulent times, from the atrocious attacks on democracy in Paris to the more recent tragedy in Brussels. We've watched as environmental disasters devastated regions around the world as government policies that directly impinge our right to live freely have been put in place. And as a result of what we've discovered about these events, I actually have to say... Converse to what we've said even a few, mere month ago, we've actually decided to put down our resolve to keep prepping. Many of you will be shocked. I know, it's true. See, I'm not shocked. Of course you would. This is where you always end up if you come at it from the standpoint. Uh, I'm sure it's not something you would have come to expect from us, but we have a reason for believing this. After much resource reflect, research, reflection, uh, deliberation, discussion, and hand-wringing, Thomas and I have come to the conclusion that prepping has become superfluous to the requirement of the present day and age. Why? Well, while the world is not perfectly safe, it is safe enough. Our governments here in North America may not be the most intelligent, but they are comprised of people who are comp competent enough, people that are indeed capable of taking care of our populations most times. Sure, they may not respond to emergencies as quickly as we might like, but let me ask you, how many people have actually died from the kinds of situations we prep for? It's a numbers game, and preppers are fighting to save themselves from an already slim odds that emergency circumstances will happen to them. Let's be real, the facts as they are. You're likely not going to end up in a shit-hit-the-fan situation that will threaten your life. When the electricity went out here in Toronto a couple years back, they couldn't get it back up right away. Five days and four nights went by with no electricity, but not many around us seemed to suffer. Hell, most of the time they spent uh, dilly-dallying in malls, which conveniently keep generators, and thus ended up capitalizing even more from the lack of power. I mean, what else should you spend your time on when you have no internet or TV at home? This could have been us. While we were out worrying about what happened if the electricity stayed out for another week or two, we could have been going with the flow like everyone else, buying a nice gas cooktop and using it to make a few warm meals at home, spending the day changing our phones in the, charging our phones in the mall outlets and looking for new restaurants uh, to try that had uh, backup generators running. We could have been enjoying our lives. Okay, I'm going to stop. If you couldn't enjoy your lives during this period of time, if you could have done all that shit and been better off at home, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. And I'm gonna, the, 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 the show today will end with a concrete example of the preparedness that we teach paying off for a real listener and his family in this audience. Because this is dumb. And the reason this is dumb is because it was always dumb. I've never heard of this blog. I mean, this blog looks like it's supposed to be like a big time blog and they're writing this like, it's, it's some kind of, uh, Uh, like major thing, like thousands and thousands of readers are gonna. I don't think this blog was ever big. I think this was a uh, uh, kind of a, a way to make some money for these people. Uh, I think it was like, hey, let's 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 do what other people are doing in this space. Um, when I look at it, uh, and I look at the posts, I, I see that in the, the, their their last post that they did before this one on February 27th was on February 23rd called How to Wipe Yourself Off the Grid. So apparently they hadn't quite got over the hump with you know not prepping, but in four days they figured it out. Prior to that, 
Uh, they had a decent post, by the way, on drowning in debt. That was October 25, 2016. Okay, so that was like four or five months. And then October 25, what to do first when you are away and the shit hits the fan. Um, this is all about the shit hitting the fan, which is why they ended up where they ended up. I have people all the time, what are you getting when the shit hits the fan? I'll figure it out when it happens. That doesn't sound very prepared. Oh, I'm prepared for all the stuff that's likely to happen, and therefore I'm prepared if the shit hits the fan. However, what that means is different to different people. And the people that always, 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 always fall out, always, are the ones that start with the mentality of preparing for the end of the world as we know it. The ones that read Patriots and got freaked out and went out and bought a bunch of guns and MREs and they're buying ham radio gear that they don't know how to use and they're putting together a group that's going to defend their combat. They always fall out because eventually they realize how stupid they're behaving and they've destroyed prepping mentally in their lives. They've ruined it. There, there's, there's no other way to look at it. They've ruined it. And I'll tell you what else always fails. Always, always, always. Every business built on that model. Every business built on that model. And I saw it very early on. I already knew I wasn't going to build the survival podcast on this model. And that's why not three years of blogging, but eight, almost nine years now of audio production, I'm still going strong. The business is still growing. The audience is still growing. And there's still new and interesting things to bring to you. But... A thing that kind of gave me the heads up and said, Jack, you're right. You stick to this. You never go sell fear and doom. Never, 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 never do it. Even if you have a guest on that wants to talk about it, fine. Let them talk about it. And then just kind of say, well, yep, yeah, that's nice. And that's one viewpoint, and here's mine. I met a guy named James Talmadge Stevens. I was probably a year into this walk. And he had a book called Making the Best of Basics. This book is a pretty good book and comes from a very good kind of, you know, stable standpoint on being prepared in life. And he had released this like six times up, up at this point. He was about to do a seventh release of it. He had sold like a three quarters of a million of them. And he wanted me to be an affiliate. I said, well, send me a copy of the book. He said, I'm going to send you the last edition. It'll be a lot like the new one, but there'll be some things added and stuff like that. So I get the last edition, which had, which had been released right around Y2K. So this is around 2009. And this had been released in like 98, leading up to the Y2K craziness. And I saw what he had done, and it was from a uh, from a, a business standpoint, brilliant. He had gotten literally a couple hundred companies that were selling shit, you know, generators, backup power system, uh, pods to bury in the ground, all that shit, doomsday prepper crap, to pay him to include a page in the book with their advertisement. He got the people that advertised in his book to pay the entire printing costs, and probably then some, So his profit on every book he sold was 100%. But this was the interesting thing. When I started looking up those companies, 9 out of 10 were out of business. Only 8, 9 years later, they were out of business. And you could tell some of them had been out of business for a long time since like, oh, I don't know, uh, February 2000. You know, about a month into 2000, they closed their doors. It always happens this way. Don't let it happen to you. Don't prepare from a standpoint of fear. Because I'll tell you what, when we had power out for over a week in Arkansas with ice storms, and it was cold as shit, yeah, there were people when we decided, hey, let's go out. We went down to uh, Cracker Barrel to have breakfast, and everybody that was sitting around us sounded miserable. We're like, this has been fun. 
This is because we had a generator, because we had a source of backup heat. We didn't really care. Oh, and going to hang out at the mall, not so easy in an ice storm, but when the roads are still covered in ice, and you're sitting there for 48 hours before they get opened up. That's just one example. Preparedness is a, is the truth about preparedness is what, it's what responsible adults do. And when we make it something extreme, we ruin it. And then responsible adults who went extreme and stupid become irresponsible adults who do not take any consideration to their own prepping anymore. I'll tell you why these people walked. Because their blog wasn't making any money. That's the truth. But it didn't make any money, and they didn't get where they needed to get because they were preparing from the wrong mental standpoint. They had no longevity, no stability. They had no resiliency. Their business was built without a preparedness mindset, even though it was about preparedness. Don't let it happen to you. Let's take another one. Here's one comes from Mike. Mike says, I have a firearms question. Uh, can I have your advice and thoughts on old guns that have sentimental value? Should I have it restored or leave it weathered and aged? The oak stock and forearm uh, are in... He doesn't tell me what gun it is yet, but he's got a gun here. His grandfather's from the 30s. Okay. The oak stock and forearm are in great condition, and mechanically it's fine, but the finish is discolored and detracts from the gun's appearance. I have an antique double-barrel 12-gauge with exposed hammers. It was my grandfather's who used it to put meat on the table in rural Kentucky in the 1930s. The gun overall is in really good condition. I fired it several times growing up, but it has not been fired in at least 35 years. Over the years, I've kept it lubed and wrapped in cloth while stored in my parents' basement. Due to some life changes, I am taking the shotgun to our lake cabin in northern Minnesota where it will be prominently displayed. I am in a financial position to have it restored to its original glory, but should I? I would like to shoot it again on occasion, but if advised against this, it would not bother me. Eventually, I will turn it over to my son, who's now 12 years old. From I'm a long-time listener, listening since the Jetta TDI days of 2008, episode 13 to be exact. I'm, o I'm overseas li li living on MSB. I'm overseas living on MSB. Oh, okay. His, his, use, his username is overseas living. Uh, keep up the good work, Mike. Okay, so Mike, this is one of those things that there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. Now, let's talk about restoration versus modernization. Restoration means that we do things like we remove rust, we re-blue it, or if it was a, a gun that had been browned, as they used to call it, we, we, we put it back to the way that it was when it was new. We maybe strip the stock down, and we finish it the way that it was when it was new. And we make it look like it looked when it was a brand new gun, when your, your grandfather probably bought it for 16 bucks out of the Sears catalog or something like that, and had it shipped to his front door. Because that's how people used to buy guns, and no, not everybody was being killed by guns when it used to be that way, surprisingly enough. Okay, I'm all for that. I am not for taking a piece of history and altering it to, you know, put some sort of a military parkerization on it or some kind of uh, coating. Uh, I can't think of what they're called now, but there's different coatings now. Or, or you know, trying to make it look like a Weatherby when we redo the stock. Uh, because that gun never looked that way. You know, like stripping it down and, and trying to put feathering in it that was never there or something like that. I am for making it look the way that it used to look. I'm also a big believer that, hey, those dings, those little bits of rust, as long as they're not detracting from the, the gun's ability to, to, to do what it's intended to do, if you want to be able to shoot it, then 
you know, we leave them, those little cracks in the stock. Every little scratch and scrape is something that, you know, when, you're, when your granddad was going through a bramble and trying to kick a rabbit out and he, he, he slipped and he, you know, brushed the, the stock against an oak tree or something, that's where all that came from. But I also think there's kind of a middle ground, too. We can do a restoration without taking all those character marks out. And we can just basically strip the finish and refinish it. And we can just remove the surface rust and do a rebluing. And, you know, you can tell the gunsmith doing the work. I don't want, you know, I don't want you to use water to float out the dents. I don't want it sanded down. I want those left, but I want it to look nice. And they'll do that for you, too. Or you can, you can take this on yourself. It's not really a hard project. If it was me, personally, I would probably come down on the side of let's restore this thing. And let's take it out and use it once in a while. You know, I have a question about long-term storage of guns, but I kind of look at guns like airplanes. Do you know if you put an airplane, you know, on a flight line and just let it sit there, it will literally begin to fall apart if it doesn't fly and get maintained? Like, it's not designed. You put it in a museum with special climate controls and all like that, but if you just leave it, you know, sit out on a tarmac, it'll start to, 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 to fail. It's designed to fly. Guns are some of the most reliable, best-built tools on the planet, and they're designed to be used. And I, I, I can't think of something better than having a young kid break a clay with his great-grandfather's shotgun or knock a ring deck down with one. And yeah, there's newer, better guns out there now, but there's history in a gun. And if you want to leave it look old, fine. You want to make it look good, fine. And I'll tell you something about old guns. Even when you make them look good, they still look old. You don't lose old. It doesn't all of a sudden look like an 870 that you bought off, you know, an 870 Express matte finish that you bought for 300 bucks off of the sporting goods store yesterday. You know, it still looks like that old Parker Hell shotgun or whatever it is. I've restored a lot of old guns myself. If they need to really be reblued, I'll have that done by somebody because you really need a tank to be able to do that right. But woodwork, I generally do myself. It's, it's not hard. It's not difficult at all. And if you're not comfortable doing it, well, go out to a gun show and find yourself a busted-ass old-looking single-shot or double-barrel for a couple hundred dollars that you have no sentimental value to and do that one first and, and, and prove out the skill for yourself. And there'd be something to that, too. There'd be something to that, too, to be able to say, this was granddaddy's gun, my granddaddy's gun. And I've restored it, and now I'm going to give it to my son, and I'm going to teach him that skill so that if one day it gets used for another 50 or 100 years and it needs another another way to be restored, needs another, another you know, gone over, my great-grandkid will know how to do it because I'm going to pass the skill down with the gun. There's something to that. I'm just saying. But either way is okay. Neither one of those is a wrong thing. This next question comes from the same guy, and I'll read it because it kind of fits in with what we just talked about. It says, I own an old M1 carbine, an off-brand called Universal. Purchased it in the early 80s at a gun and knife show and kept it in good condition. I also own a Beretta M9, a Smith & Wesson 686, a Ruger GP100, and a few other long guns, but those are never fired. I run about 50 to 100 rounds through them each year and then clean and stored until next year. Can you advise on proper storage of firearms for storage times that can exceed one to two years or more? Farms are stored in a safe location in a cabin in northern Minnesota. 
Uh, the cabin's temperature is set so that the site does not drop below 45 degrees in the winter. Can I also comment on ammo storage? I should note that I spent 20 years in the military. Most of this was overseas. I did not have my firearms with me. Since retiring from the military, I took another government job that keeps me overseas for the past 10 years. I'm a long-time listener, and uh, keep up the good work. Okay, so here's the deal. If you take your gun and clean it properly, lube it properly, run a patch through the barrel, all that good stuff, and and wipe it down with a with a you know a, a little bit of an oil rag, and you put it in a gun safe or a gun cabinet, it could probably sit there for ten years. It's probably going to be fine. Um, there is something to be worried about with moisture buildup, and I'll talk about a very simple and expensive solution to that in a second. Um, but it will probably be fine. If you wanted to go the lowest tech uh, humidity solution you can get, get yourself a big ass bag, you know, of like a canvas bag or burlap bag, something with him breathe of rice and just throw it in the bottom of your gun safe. Now I'm going to give you a better technical solution to that problem, but that would probably be overkill, honestly. Um, I have walked into people's houses, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago that it, what people didn't have gun safes. People had gun cabinets. They were beautiful. They were wood. They were made out of walnut. And you could see those beautiful guns sitting behind them. It really wasn't that long ago. Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania. When you walked into anybody's house, there was a gun cabinet there. And there was that, that gun oil smell. And it was just something special. And I remember walking into people's houses and said, wow, you got a lot of guns. And the guy would say something like, yeah, they were my dad's. I really just keep them because they were my dad's. I don't really do anything with them. And I'll say, well, like, when was the last time you even opened that cabinet? Well, like five years ago. Can I look at some of them? Sure. You pull them out and they still have that oil smell on them because they were nicely wiped down. You look at them, there's no surface rust. I'm not suggesting you take that approach, but, you know, let me tell you how the guns were maintained in our gun cabinet. We had a jar, like a jelly jar, and we had a rag, just a, a simple, cheap rag, lint-free rag that lived in that jar. It had some gun oil on it. And every once in a while, you take the guns out, you look at them, you give them a rub down on the outside with that rag and put them back away. Takes a couple seconds of gun. That was about it. When they were fired, when they were used, then they were you know broken down and fully clean and stuff like that. But that was really about it. And a lot of the new finishes and stuff don't even really require that. Some of the new finishes, you just, like, you really don't want to rub them down with an oil rag anymore. I'm talking about, you know, glossy blue finishes here. It's not that big a deal, but I would recommend if you're going to have guns sitting in a safe or a cabinet or any place like that um, for more than you know, you know six months at a time without nobody touching them, uh, you get yourself a decent gun safe dehumidifier. Uh, that would be the one addition that I would recommend. And you can get a 110 volt, 18 inch long one, which would do most gun cabinets just fine. Uh, for a whopping 17 bucks, and I have a link to where you can find the one I recommend uh, on Amazon today. And that little dehumidifier will make sure you don't have any buildup of moisture and things like that. But it, it's not that big a deal. As far as storage of ammo, a uh, number of years ago, SOG, Southern Ohio Gun, had Turkish Mausers on sale for $95.00. And since they were they were eight millimeter and they had been rebarreled in the thirties, the Turks sent them to Germany, had them rebarreled and sent back. So they were modern bolt action, if you want to call them that. But they had been built in the eighteen nineties. They were old enough that you didn't need paperwork to get one. So I bought one, 
And uh, I found Cheaper Than Dirt was selling 8mm uh, ammunition, surplus ammunition, for some stupid price. And they came on these five-round stripper clips and these uh, bandoliers. And what they what had happened is, as Turkey geared up for World War II, they had all this 8mm for their machine guns, and they had women sew these bandoliers out of, like, you know, cheap cloth, like scrap, and put these little buttons on them and put and take the the the, uh, the eight millimeter off the chains and put them onto stripper clips, five each stripper clip, two in each thing. And they were like, I don't know, I think there was like eight of them, so sixteen times five rounds, and they were like six bucks. And they had been stored like shit, you could tell. But I bought a bunch of them because they were cheap. And uh, when I got them, some of them were so damn old. You could just take your finger and start wiggling and pull the slug out. There wasn't a lot, but there were just to give you an idea. All the ones that didn't do that, that I put in that gun and pulled the trigger, it went bang and the round went downrange. Ammunition is extremely shelf stable. Unless you do something stupid with ammo, it will store longer than you. Keep it dry, keep it cool, keep it you know, keep it someplace where if there's a fire, it's less likely to be a problem, and don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't freaking worry about it. I bought one time, I needed some 4570 ammo because I had a buddy coming over and I didn't feel like doing any reloading. He wanted to shoot my 4570 and I was out of anything except my really expensive hunting grade ammo and I didn't want to use that because I knew this guy would want to shoot a lot. So I went down to a local gun store in, uh, in Hot Springs, Arkansas. They didn't have any of the cheap green and yellow Remington I usually buy. Good source of me. You buy that for almost what you pay for the brass. Uh, but he, he said, I got some for you. He pulled this box of shells out, two boxes of shells out. He said, I think these are from like the 80s. And they were like a 405-grain flat-point slug. When he pulled them out, the lead was so old that it turned white. And I'm like, well, what do you want from him? He goes, nobody's going to buy them. I'll, I'll give them to you for $10 a box. I'm like, sold. Every one of them fired just fine. Don't worry about ammo. Don't worry. If you are vacuum sealing ammo, preparing for the apocalypse, you are going to end up like those people that aren't prepping anymore. Don't do it. Don't sweat it. This next one says uh, from Jim says, I want to ask you about uh, prepping if you're a snowbird. We were retired recently and bought a house in Florida and still own in New York. This year we left a freezer full of food in New York while we were in Florida for five months. It doesn't seem practical to leave it running for that long. We don't plan on leaving our fridge plugged in when we leave Florida. We will eat down what's in our fridge freezer before we leave. Any suggestions or recommendations for prepping for those of us that travel like this? First of all, I want to tell you, Jim, that um, before we really decided to go deep roots with homesteading and we started looking at uh, my ability to build this business where it could be run from anywhere, Dorothy and I looked really hard. At buying a piece of property like in central Minnesota or something like that is our summer property and having a, a property here and traveling in between them. I think it's a, a pretty cool way to live. Um, we would have definitely done it somewhere here, so that part of the year we were with family, but um, you know, my preference would have been somewhere like the northern area for the, the you know the, the heat of summer and like South Florida for the rest of the year. So I think it's cool, and I get the appeal the, uh, the um, appeal of snowboarding. I I, I get it. Um, when it comes to preparedness for, for you in that situation, 
I think you just do the same things we talk about all the time. You're probably going to do a lot less with the homesteading type things, though some of the perennials and stuff like that can just be there for you and be harvestable. Um, you, you, you know, you can do maybe some gardening, uh, if you want to in your northern climate. New York's a great place to garden. It rains all the time. It's green as hell. It's about the only thing it's got going for it. That and a lot of deer. Um, And, you know, you could have some perennials that are harvestable. That's up to you whether you want to do that or not. I get the feeling for some reason that's not really your thing. Uh, but food storage. I think what it really makes sense to do is have a good, deep pantry that's sitting there waiting for you when you come back to your place. I think eating down the refrigerator and freezer is a great idea because you have no idea if the power went out for two weeks, skanked up all your food, and it refroze. You just don't know. Here's some things you can do to know, but then it's just wasted anyway. And um, <clears throat> It makes me think, one time when we were on vacation, I had a chest freezer, and I had two deer and a pig in it. The little bitty one just stacked. I had just done all my butchering, and we went on vacation to Florida for two weeks. And the freezer, the power didn't go out, the freezer died. And it must have died like 15 minutes after we headed to the airport. And when we got back, it smelled like somebody murdered people and put them in my garage. It was just disgusting. It was awful. It was getting rid of it was just like gut-wrenching. Not just because I lost all that great meat, but because of the stink. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of that long term with, because two weeks was a disaster, right? So I think your plan's good there. You have a good deep pantry. You need the stuff that you need to be prepared with you on the road when you go back and forth. And then you you think about basic preparedness. You have to have a good medical kit in both places. You should have a good evacuation plan for both places. The good news for you is your evacuation plan is go back to the other place. You just need to have that in place. You should have a good documentation plan in place, right? And and you you should take some level of redundancy for your planning. But I think you don't really do anything that different. You just rely more on planning than stuff. Because the redundancy of stuff in the two locations can be cost prohibitive. But things like an emergency radio or two. Well, you don't need one in each location. That's pretty small. That can be in your travel kit, right? Um, all the stuff to make sure your, cell, your cell phone and your batteries and all that charge, you can, you can put that in your travel kit. That's so inexpensive, though, that you may want to create redundancy with that. But an inverter for your car stays with your car. And you might even take the stance of, I'm going to have a, all the stuff to charge my batteries with in both locations, but I'll just throw all the batteries in a great big Ziploc when we leave. I mean, you got to start thinking more along that kind of a viewpoint. With Florida, you have hurricanes to worry about. You're probably vacationing or living there when that's less likely, though. Uh, but you have to have that same kind of mindset that if something goes wrong and I have to leave or I have to deal with it, how am I going to deal with it? And if you're prepping the way, because I think this is a great series of questions that came in today. If you're prepping the way that I teach in general, you're not going to have that big of an issue here. Because you're not going to have a pallet of MREs at both locations. But I do think a deep pantry of eat what you store and store what you eat at both locations is a good idea. Because I want to just talk about like lifestyle design a little bit here with this. So now it's time to go to Florida. And uh, you've eaten down the refrigerator. You, you went home to New York, and now you're going back to Florida. It's, it's next season. And you're, you, you have all your stuff loaded up, maybe the dog or something with you, and you're, you're heading to your house. You get to your house, and first thing you need to do is go grocery shopping. 
You have to because you don't have anything there because you know you've you've eaten down the refrigerator. Well, with the scenario I just gave you, what you do is you go out and you buy meat and fresh vegetables, basically maybe some ice cream and a loaf of bread. And when you come home, you have everything else that you need, and then you start eating down your pantry. And as you eat down your pantry, you refill it. And by the end of the season, you've done your full pantry rotation. Now you have stuff that's two years, you know, storable, and you're going to be back in, you know, four six months to do it again. And you do the same thing in your New York location. And that's a good core of food that's there. And with dry goods and things like that, you could show up, have a decent meal without going to the grocery store until the next day or the day after, have a little bit more time to settle in. And again, you think about your electronic devices, your means of communication, your documentation, all of that stuff. But yeah, I'm not a fan of leaving the, the freezer running for six months. And it ain't about the electric bill. It's about what happens if it fails. Because, dude, I did it, and you don't want to do it. You don't ever want to do it. I almost didn't get through it. I almost didn't get through it. And I'll tell you the truth. I, I taped it shut, dollied it out, got it into the back of the truck, and took it to a landfill. I didn't even empty it. And you know what? I almost didn't get through doing that. It was that bad. It's not something you want to come home to. And could you imagine that sitting in your, your, your house for four months, permeating that stink into your entire property? You might never get it out. So I'm not big on that. Let's take another one. This one comes from Quinn. Quinn says, hey, Jack, hi from Portland, Oregon. Looking for thoughts on dome housing and the cement homes or 3D printed homes I've seen pop up on Facebook feed more often. Background, my wife and I are looking to purchase property. I'm a mailman making okay wage. These houses can be attractive, uh, att very attractive. Attractiveness are said to withstand storms, other severe winter conditions. I remember you saying in a previous episode that you and your wife looked at one but couldn't get a loan on it. If I wanted to buy property and build, how far out of the city would something like this need to be done? And what would be your suggestions for getting this, this affordable alternative started for my family? Thanks for everything, Quinn. Okay, here's my deal with these. I think they are one of the most fantastic designs that anybody's ever come up with for a living structure. I think they, they give you an incredible uh, bang for the buck on square footage. I think they're incredibly strong and resilient. And if I had a, a, a concrete dome house and a tornado was headed right for my house, I'd just go to the center of the house and kick back and have a beer and, and, and ride it out. Because they are that badass. Okay? Great. How far do you have to be outside of the city or whatever? I don't know. It depends on building codes and local ordinances, dude. I mean, the one we looked at wasn't far outside of anything. It was right in the middle of Mansfield. It was it was like 10 minutes from my father-in-law's house, and yet it had seven and a half acres. I, I was like, I was in love with it before we saw it, just by looking at it online. This is fantastic. And it was it was you know very near where we had lived before we had left for Arkansas. So it wasn't out in the middle of nothing. But there, I can see there definitely could be other places where you just can't do it. I, I get it. My concern with them lies only in two things. One, the whole contractor discussion we had with Gary Collins, and it's not something that is typically done, and there are some concerns. Like, when you go to do your cabinetry in your kitchen, where's the flat wall? Oh, gee, we don't have one. Okay. And you can do some things where there's flat walls inside the building, but there's always curved walls. 
so your fixtures and finishes can be more expensive and maybe it's not as affordable as you thought it was because no one builds stuff for them. They all have to be custom built or customized to fit in. Okay? Um, so that's a little concern. The bigger concern is the financing. When I found out that it was going to be almost impossible to get financing on the house, I started immediately in my head to go, Jack, this is not you. This is not how you think. You can get shit done that no one else can get done. There is a way to get financing on this damn thing. And it really came down to appraisal. It wasn't even like, you know, FHA was like, oh, we can't do that. Or VA was like, we can't do that. Uh, you know, or conventional loan was like, we can't do that. What it was is you couldn't get it appraised. No appraiser would touch it. Because they had nothing as a comparable to appraise it to. It's like, my God, it's a 4,400 square foot house with a freaking kitchen that looks like it was designed for Bobby Flay or, or Guy Frietti. Okay, what do you mean? It's seven acres. It's Mansfield. They're paying taxes on it. There's a tax assessment. What do you mean you can't appraise it? Wouldn't touch it. And I started thinking, there's some way to do this. And then I thought, stop. Just stop. Just stop. Because even if you find the loophole, even if you get it done, you're going to be breaking your rule on exit strategy. Who knows if the next person can get it done? So my concern, even if we could self-fund something like this today, and it's a big part of what holds it back, what's your exit strategy? You build this beautiful house. Everybody and their mother can look at it and go, that's a $300,000 house. You need to sell it. How many people are walking around with $300,000 $300, in their billfold? That's my concern. So I don't know if things have changed. I don't know if this is easier to do. I don't know with all of the innovations, because I haven't looked at this in like four years. But that's my concern. From a structural standpoint, they are unbelievable. They're, they're just amazing structures. But they don't fit with the mentality of the state, and therefore they have not been embraced. Now, I think that's going to change. I think being able to, with a 3D concrete printer, print a freaking house is going to require that that changes. It, it absolutely is, because it's going to drive the cost down. But I don't know that that's happened yet. So how do you do it affordably? How do you get it done? I don't have any idea. And if anybody has experience with these structures, um, let me know. But again, my concern is even if you can do it very affordably, with a good bang for the buck, getting everything to fit it, the customization of fittings, uh, and the expense you're going to have, and then what's your exit strategy? So if you can tick the box that there are now mortgages that are easily accessible to the average consumer to buy a property like this, then I would say you could proceed if everything almost makes sense for you. Otherwise, I'd buy a, a square house. And build it with ICFs or something if you want it to be incredibly strong and, and, and resilient and what have you. Because then you can sell it as a normal house. Because let me explain something to you. If 10% of eligible buyers can qualify for, to buy your house, you're probably screwed. Because 90% can't. You want 100% of eligible buyers, a person that's pre-qualified. Your house is a quarter million dollars. They're pre-qualified to buy a house for a quarter million dollars. You want their only decision to be... Do I want to buy this house? Not, even though they say I can buy a quarter million dollar house, can I buy this one? 
Because as soon as that question comes up, if they're smart, and most people can buy a quarter million dollar house, or at least smart in some level, they start thinking, well, what about when I want to sell it? And they also start thinking path of least resistance. You know, there's other houses. So be careful with it. And again, I'd love to hear from people about how this may have changed. Are there other opportunities? Because I think that we need some sort of a new lending system to help people buy houses that are great houses that are, you know, highly valuable that there's nothing wrong with that don't fit the current model. But I don't have the, the, the bankroll to make that happen. You're talking about, you know, a billionaire type of, of situation. I think there's an incredible opportunity. You know, off grid, smaller homes, all that stuff. And if you, this is the, the truth. Access to capital is the number one thing that either drives or holds back the housing market. Access to capital. If you can access the capital and service the debt, you're more likely to buy a house than if you can't. And if someone can service the debt on a $150,000 home, the shape of that home should be irrelevant. But as far as I know, it's not. Let's take another one. Okay, so this is from Jordan. Jordan says, I want your opinion on what plants to include in a seed mix. I want to go native on my property. I live in the Pacific Northwest. My property is mostly wooded, 2.5-acre piece of land. However, it's not densely wooded. This leaves plenty of glades and alcoves with native shrub layer dominating. The problem is these species are not productive. I want to transition this shrub layer into something more productive in terms of food using a low-input method like broadcasting large amounts of seed everywhere. Thanks. Keep up the good work, Jordan, in Washington. I'm going to say something you don't want to hear. No, you don't. It's not going to work because you're not going to have anything you're going to broadcast with seed that's going to be like a pasture-like plant without some means of mechanical control. I'll compete shrubs, which are successing themselves. You say, well, it's not all densely wooded yet. It's not all densely wooded yet. That shrub layer of scrubby stuff that you're like, this is useless to me, is pioneer shrub species. I don't know what they are, but I know they're pioneers. And what they're doing is they're laying the groundwork for the whole thing to become woods. So you have some some things to, to think about here, but I'll get to in a second. As far as selecting seeds for broadcasting, first of all, broadcasting large amounts of seed everywhere is not a low-input method. It's a very high-input method and a very ineffective one. Small amounts of seed into the right situations is the way to go, scattered here and scattered there. Um, but selecting seeds for your region, you know, go to high mowing seeds, click on cover crops and, 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 and perennial seeds and stuff like that. And take a look at all of their things. Find the stuff that is perennial or, um, or is good at annual reseeding and fits in your USDA climate and start there. And I mean, you can bring in things that are annuals that are really great for crop establishment like daikon. Uh, is something I just think should be everywhere. Small amounts of it here and there. Let someone to go to seed. It'll start receding. It'll go native on its own. Clovers, alfalfas, uh, medics, uh, plantains. These are the things to build a pasture on with some sort of a perennial grass that works or a mixture of perennial grasses that works well in your area. It's always going to be the answer. And you almost don't need any seed. But small amounts here and there behind something like animals that are grazing, that'll work. But you're not going to create a system of productive stuff just by throwing seed on the ground. Because the shrubs and the woody perennial weeds, if you want to call them that, are going to outcompete whatever you throw down. So you either have to mechanically cut, control, and plant, and then we either need to plant something like we're going to go success to forest, so we're going to control that succession, 
and we're going to go with a good ground cover, and we're going to go with productive bushes, shrubs, and vines, and we're going to go to a productive food forest, or if we want to maintain it openly, we're either going to have to mow it, bush hog it, or graze it. And there ain't no other way around it. You know, or you can crop it. I mean, it's when you look at a piece of land. If you want it to stay not covered in trees long term, unless it's a desert where trees don't grow, you can either crop it, you can graze it, or you can mechanically graze it with something like a lawnmower or a bush hog or fire. Anything else, especially the Pacific Northwest, it's going to start hauling ass toward forest. So you have to actually figure out what you want from this and how you want to do it. And I'm back to when I talked about pigs and the blackberries. It's what Seb Holzer had to say when somebody said, well, I got this blackberry problem. And he said, put pigs. And they said, I don't want pigs. And he said, if you don't want the pigs, you have to do the pigs' work. So this type of situation is ideal for gracing something like goats or dorper sheep. Small acreage, scrubby stuff. And you can maintain them with that. I don't really like goats at all, even a little bit, but they work. And some sort of portable infrastructure, but maybe you don't want that. So then you've got to figure out what do you really want. And, and I don't think you're to the point right now of picking out your seed mix because you haven't assessed the property from a standpoint of a total lens of design, which is what you have to do now. You have to say to yourself, what do I really want? And then you have to look at the means by which you get to there. But I still want to hear a little bit more about the seed mix. This is one of the most common, what seed mix, what seed mix, what seed mix? Listen, I think Sepp Holzer is the cause of this. You know, they show him with his hands in the special seed, and some of them are rare, and, and he talks like, I mean, honestly, I love the guy, and he's also a dick. You know, like, well, what do you use your seed mix? No, it's a secret. You know, whatever. Shut up. Shut up. It's special seed from Russia. Well, what is it? So I go buy it, you know? Well, I can't bring it here. Whatever, whatever. Listen. Seeds thrown on the ground in the proper conditions germinating plants grow, right? And, and when you when you really look at it, again, you're you're there to things like your your clovers, your perennial grasses, your reseeding annuals like die, which is a fantastic plant daikon. You can have short duration crops that smother so that you can success them into something else. Like buckwheat's a good example of that. If you till a piece of ground and you don't want shit to grow and you want to choke everything out, all the natural seeds that are going to regrow, so that you can control what you plant long-term, plant that sucker with buckwheat. And let let one you know succession of buckwheat come through and, and let that run about six weeks, seven weeks until it starts to flower. And before it seeds... Cut it or till it, and then plant it to your next succession, and you'll just really dramatically choke out any any competing weeds, and you can success that into something more like a grass or something like that. But that's that's kind of a sophisticated technique. You got to figure out again what do you want the system to be. But I'll tell you the best way to improve pasture with your seed mixes is a, a lot of different shit and some sort of animal, and behind that animal, small amounts, not heroic amounts. Little, little sift here. Put the chickens in a chicken tractor. They're there for a day. We move them today. Little sift the seed. Move them the next day. Little sift the seed. Move them the next day. Little sift the seed. That's it. And what you're looking for is natural selection to occur 
The strongest clover reproduce. They go to flower next year. The bees do their thing. They drop seed. That type of thing. All right. So don't overthink the the seed. There's there's no magic seed mixtures. They just don't exist. And and you shouldn't think too hard. But I do have almost an hour long presentation on building seed mixes on YouTube, and I will put a link in the show notes today so that you can take a look at it. And it will give you all kinds of shit, but in the end, it's going to come back to what grows in your area, what's perennial in your area, and what do you want in your area, and there's only so much to pick from. Let's take another one. This one comes from Old Millennial. He says, Jack, why do you prefer using straight mono versus a braid and mono or fluoro leader? This is a fishing question. So he's asking me, why do you use regular fishing line instead of fancy braided fishing line with old school fishing line for your leader? For those that aren't, you know, fishermen and don't get it. Details. I've recently switched most of my gear to Spectra braid and the leaders versus the mono that I always used to use. Whilst it's costlier, I have researched that these braids last a good 10 years before being replaced where mono needs to be replaced yearly if heavily used, especially in salt. I agree with your point that the stretch of mono helps, especially in things like trolling, uh, where the give is more likely to get a good hook set. But why not just put a long leader in that application? The ability to tie new leaders also means you can quickly swap out line, uh, the weight of line, uh, probably easier than swapping the spool. Is there something about full mono I'm missing? I fish with mono most of my life, but the system seems better. Um, so let, let's talk about this. Well, first of all, where are you fishing? Where are you fishing for what to what end? So most of the fishing I do is for relatively small fish uh, in fresh water. Um, braid has a significant expense, and we've all been out at some point and thrown a cast and something went wrong, and you get like a massive amount of line tangled together. You finally decide to just cut it out, and that's gone. And sometimes you lose enough line, you have to re-spool. Well, that's kind of expensive. Right, and braid also under heavy use sometimes will dig into itself on a spool. The braid's not perfect, and for those that understand what I'm talking about, braided line is basically line that's that's braided, okay, and that way we can have let's say a, a piece of line that's got a 20 pound test, but it's the diameter of six pound monofilament. So you don't just get a, a stronger line. Uh, with a longer life expectancy, you get a thinner line relative to the test. This is very advantageous when you want to do something like shore fish for sharks because we can fit 300 yards on a spool uh, of 65-pound line where if we were using 65-pound mono, we would never get that much on there. Okay, so here's the deal. I don't prefer one versus the other. I see them as different tools for different situations. My regular gear, mono's cheap. It's available, it's easy to work with. As far as using different leaders, since most of the time I, I fish with a light snap swivel anyway, that's an easy change. That's actually faster than using it with a leader tied on a fluorocarbon. Okay? So just doesn't, doesn't really pertain when, we're, when you're using that methodology. Um, when I'm fishing saltwater or when I'm fishing large game fish, then I switch to a braid with a leader. I, it's really that simple. So I, I just don't see them as being exclusively one or the other. And I keep a lot of rods rigged up, some that don't get used very often. And those rods, there's no reason to have you know thirty dollars worth of line sitting on them. There's just none. I you know I've mentioned that I'm going to be buying a boat this year, 
And I have two rods still sitting out in the garage. I haven't used them since I had a boat last. But I always kept two rods, kind of a medium light action rod, not real expensive stuff. It's probably $35 setup with two slip floats on them. And what a slip float is, you take a little piece of thread, you put that on your line, and you pull this little tube out of it, and you tighten it, and you can slide that thread up and down your line. And it's really small. You can reel it all the way onto your reel, and it'll still cast. And then you put a slip bobber that hits a swivel that stops it. And what this lets you do is if you're in 18 feet of water, and you want to fish a bobber two feet off the bottom, 16 feet down, can you imagine trying to cast a bobber with 16 feet hanging off the end of it? Right? So you just slide your little knot to where you have 16 feet of line. And when the bobber, when the line pulls through the bobber, when it gets to that, that, that knot, it stops. But you can move that knot up and down. Can't move that knot on braid. Doesn't work well on braid. That's a mono technology, right? Mono filament technology. So I have those two rods set up. I didn't use them often. They were for catfish. They were for catfish. You're out with your boat. You go to an area that you know typically holds catfish. You look in your sonar. You're marking fish. You're in 18 feet of water. You're marking fish just off the bottom. Okay. We pull those rods out of the locker box. We bait them up. We set that knot. Boom. We're suspending that bait right on top of those fish. We can keep the boat back a little ways from so we're not spooking them. And we can cast to that location. And that line just comes down and hangs right there. Now, there's no reason for me to have expensive line on those, on those rods. And I don't have to replace the line on them often because they don't get used that often, but they're there and they're ready to go. So that's why I don't like go uniform across the board because I have, I have a lot of situations like that. I have two rods that are bait casting rods uh, that look like something most bass fishermen would use. They're rigged up at all times for trolling, specifically for sand bass and, and, and hybrids. There's no need for that expensive braid to be on those lines. They just, just don't need it. The, the fish aren't big enough to warrant it. Uh, the braid, not only does the braid, you're talking about a stretch, it doesn't kind of dig the water. It, it, everything's set up for mono to run the depths that I want to in my trolling. So I stick mostly mono. I go to braided line for you know, big catfish, surf fishing, uh, inshore fishing, snook, stuff like that. Um, otherwise, I stick to mono. So it's not a preference. It's a, it's a situation-dependent uh, thing. Our final one today comes from Ron. says, uh, it's a survival podcast. Contact form results. Thank you. That's always nicer than, Jack, you suck, right? Because I get a few of those every day. Um, <laughs> Ron says, I just want to reach out and thank you. Last month, right before Valentine's Day, my wife and children had to evacuate where they live due to a possible spillway failure over the Oroville Dam in California without my help and were able to do so with little to no issue because of topics that had been discussed on your show. A little bit about myself. I work for the California Military Department in their Joint Operations Center, where I assist the Guard's response to national and man-made disasters. I am also a commanding officer for a unit that is currently deployed. I followed your show for the last couple of years and implemented some of the things you've spoken about to include the bug-out binder in all of my vehicles and use the known uh, link-up spots for my teenage daughters to meet us if something goes wrong and they are all at a separate location. Both of these came into play last month when the county that I lived in was evacuated. I'm currently deployed with my unit overseas and was unable to help when my wife texted me, letting me know that there was a problem with the dam and that they were talking about evacuating the area. My daughter, at a school function, was not answering her phone. 
I wasn't able to get a hold of her for a while, so I was, of course, panicking. But long story short, she grabbed the pre-stage bags and, and dogs, used the binder, and met my daughter at our link-up location. They were able to get out of town safely prior to traffic becoming a standstill and were able to lessen the stress greatly. My wife has told me that she didn't even have to think between the phone number and the strip maps on the binder and was extremely grateful that they were there. Even though I work in emergency management for a living, I wouldn't have thought of doing these simple but extremely helpful tasks that made all the difference. So thank you, Ron. Ron, thank you for sharing your story. I want you to contrast this with the we've decided to quit prepping story for the second item of today. Um, how many people have ever lost their lives because of something we prep for? Okay, this this one, they weren't going to lose their lives, but... That that was a major potential disaster that just so happened didn't happen. And evacuating was the right thing to do, and they were able to do it smoothly and effectively because they were prepared for it. And I would just, you know, put that this way. How many of the people in this audience own guns for personal protection? How many of them that do it thinks it's a good idea? How many people that don't even own a gun for personal protection kind of think, I probably should do this and think it's a good idea? What are the odds that you're actually going to ever have to pull your gun on somebody in your life? They're exceedingly low. And yet dozens of people from an audience of 150,000 have written to me and said, my gun saved my ass, here's how. That's why we prepare. And if you don't know what this guy's talking about with the binders, I did a show early on, it was in the middle 100s, a documentation. And it is the process that I use to make sure that if we need to go somewhere or get out of Dodge, that everybody's on the same sheet of music. There's an identical binder in every vehicle. And it talks about where we'll link up, places you can go, information to contact everybody, what procedures are, maps. And it's, it, it, it costs a couple bucks to put together. It costs printer, ink, and paper, and a binder, and a three-hole punch. And you do it on the computer, and you save it as a file, because when something changes, and you add two pages to it or change a page, you go print, quantity, three, print, you put one in it, you take the old one out, put the new one in, and you go on with your life. And it just saved these people an immense amount of misery. And there's no doubt that that had a potential to become a catastrophic failure. And there's no doubt had it, there would have been people that didn't get out. It wasn't going to be them. This is preparedness. This is preparedness. And it wasn't anything extreme. The world wasn't going to end. And, and think about the number of people affected. Relatively low number. Compared to what doomsday preppers talk about. You know, there's going to be a coronal mass ejection from the sun and the whole grid's going to go down. Those people don't even know what it is. They don't know how it works. They don't even know what the probability is. They're nuts. They're crazy. And that's why they end up washing out. Practical preparedness. Inexpensive. Relatively easy to do. And I think this is, you guys, there's a bunch of you out there that you listen to this show for the same reason this guy does. One way or another, you found your way to it because you're cops, you're incident commanders, you're the people, you're first responders, you work in hospitals, that when there's a disaster, you are going to have to go help those in need. And your wife, your, 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 your husband, your kids, your aunt, your uncle, your granddad, your mom, your dad, etc., you won't be there to guide them. No matter how qualified you are, you can't do it when you're not there. You need to put one of these together. 
And I want to put a link in the show notes today for those that have never heard this episode. And I'll tell you that I've been doing this show, you know, about a hundred and some episodes. And uh, a master sergeant from the Marine Corps, I think I had like 30 years in the Corps at the time, named Scott. He told me when I met him at Dirt Time 2010, it's the most important thing you've done up till now. You covered every single thing, things I never even thought of. And this country would be better off if this was standard practice in every home in America. It's that important. So please consider building yourself one, and it's not hard. And I've thought about doing templates and all. It doesn't make any sense. If you just listen to the episode and do what I say, you know, it's a list. It's a, basically a list of everybody you'd ever want to talk to, uh, all your, your your financial information, so if you can get to your bank accounts and stuff like that. And don't worry, I tell you how to encrypt it. Super simple and stupid way to encrypt it to make that information safe, but you can still use it. It's 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 really an important episode. Uh, again, it was like 150-ish or something like that. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Okay, so that wraps it up. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, sorry about the rewind yesterday. And next week, guys, it's going to be all rewinds next week. I mean, I've got to hit the gun running on uh, on Monday because, you know, Wednesday afternoon, students start showing up, and they're here till Sunday. Um, and, and I'm telling you, if you're a student and you're coming here and it's 10.30 a.m. on Sunday and you haven't left yet, you are wrong, and I'm going to be pushing your butt off the property because I'm going to take a nap. Um, I love doing these events, but they, they do wear you out physically. Uh, and uh, so uh, I, I am going to have to rely on rewinds next week. I shouldn't have any more rewinds this week. We have a great interview lined up tomorrow. Listener call show on Thursday, expert counsel on Friday. So get your calls in uh, right away. Your questions for the council, get those in. If I have time, and I'm not promising, if I have time, I might be able to put the expert council show together for next Friday, but I think it's going to just be rewinds straight through. Anyway, I, I really enjoyed doing today's show. I really enjoyed handling this uh, diverse array of topics. Uh, get your stuff in for the next uh, episode of a show like this again. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. Uh, with that, let's talk about a way you can support our work here at the Survival Podcast. And it's simply that when you're going to do Amazon shopping, go to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z.com first. You can click on a link, see the deals of the day. You can shop on Amazon from there. Uh, anything that you buy at that point will help support the work that we do here at the show. You can also see our reviews. I put up items for review every day. Today's one I'm pretty excited about. There's probably going to be 10% of this audience that's going to be like, I got to get this. And the other 90 is going to go, I don't care. I just don't care. My question would be, do you keep fish in an aquarium or an aquaponics system? If the answer is yes, you need this. It's called the Python No-Spill Clean and Fill Aquarium Vacuum. This thing is freaking slick. I mean, it is absolutely freaking slick. You put one end of this thing attached to a sink or out your window like I do, a garden hose, and uh, flip a switch a certain way and turn the water on, and it sucks water out of your aquarium or off the bottom of your aquaponics system. And you have to do that when you keep aquariums, about a 20% water change once a month at least is a good good rule of thumb. Vacuum all that crud out of your, your gravel. Um, and then you shut the valve off, you go back outside make a switch on, or into the other room, wherever you have it hooked up, make another switch. You come back in, you turn the valve the other way, and it, it refills all in one go. And if you've kept aquariums and used siphons and stuff to do this and carried buckets of water out, you know, especially when you're doing something like a 55-gallon tank, you're doing a 20% change, that's 11 gallons of water. That's, you know, three bucket loads of water, basically, that you're carrying, sloshing around with fish poop in it out of your house, dumping on the ground or down your... It's And i got a double-stack tank. 
My lower tank's only five inches off the ground at the bottom. It's just, I wouldn't even do a double stack till I found this thing. I'm not going to go long on it because, again, if you don't keep fish, you're not going to care. But it, it also comes, you can buy extend, uh, uh, tube extenders for the suction end, including one 48 inches long. I am able to vacuum the bottom of my IBCs and my aquaponics system with it. It's just freaking awesome. If you're a fish keeper, this will make your life better. If you're not a fish keeper, you won't care, so just do your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com today. I got a big write-up on it, lots of details out today, and a video on how it works and everything. Check it out today. The Python, no-spill, clean-and-fill aquarium uh, vacuum. And again, you can always support us by shopping at tspaz. That brings us to our song of the day. And um, the song is from 1966, because the year is 1966. That's the Rolling Stones. No, it's not Satisfaction. That came out later. It, the song is called Mother's Little Helper. And uh, it's, it's interesting. John Adam, who puts this together, gave us a little historical context on it. He said, I had never heard of this drug till researching the song. I just knew it was about prescription drug abuse. Knowing the history of the drug brings the meaning of the song to a whole new level. This is the drug, the Rolling Stones song, Mother's Little Helper. When the Rolling Stones sang Mother's Little Helper back in 1966, they weren't talking about drugs. They were talking about a specific drug that was prescribed from everything from severely ill mental patients to recovering alcoholics to a comfortable middle-class people who sometimes felt anxious. It was called Milltown. Before Milltown, the, be <clears throat> the best most mentally ill people could do was get a competent therapist and manage the worst of their symptoms. If symptoms became too extreme, patients went to hospitals and seldom came out again. But in the 1940s, two scientists noticed a drug, Mepazian, had tranquilizing effect on lab rats. That was the start of something big. The drug was reworked into something called Mepromamate and tested out on patients in Mississippi Mental Hospital. A few made a complete recovery, and just under a third felt that their symptoms were greatly improved. It's true that only those with the mildest symptoms greatly benefited from the drug, but that meant that many people could, with their prescription, simply walk out of the hospital. Membropromate let a lot of patients live outside of institutions. It also probably helped many Americans who were already able to live outside institutions, but still felt anxious and unhappy. Milltown hit America in 1954. By 1956, doctors had written 36 million prescriptions for it. At the height of its popularity, one out of every three prescriptions called for this drug. Common as it was, it wasn't, it wasn't overprescribed. There literally wasn't anything else. There were drawbacks. If used over a long period of time, the drug is physically addictive. Sudden suspension of the drug causes dangerous withdrawal symptoms. In order to quit, users have to slowly reduce their intake. And while metaprobate does have a tranquilizing effect, the emotional tranquility is accompanied by physical and mental drowsiness as well. It is far from a perfect drug. It just was for a long time the only drug. One of the things that gave probate a bad name is it was its use by housewives. The idea that these women, seemingly without a problem in the world, needed drugs to get by sparked confusion and scorn, as did the fact that many women became physically addicted to the drug. This is where the phrase Mother's Little Helper comes from. probate is a drug reference in a famous song. Of course, by 1966, when the song was released, other drugs on, on the market... Uh, as the effectiveness, specificity, and sheer number of drugs increased, probate fell out of favor. It's still around, though, and people are still addicted to it. Okay. If that wasn't enough, I, I have to do something today that I don't like to do. I have to recommend that you watch a documentary. You think, why would he not want to do that? Because of the source of the documentary. 
and I try not to commit ad hominem attacks. Um, and I try to say this is good information even if I don't like the source. That's the case here. It's called the, the, the documentary is called Making a Killing, and it is the history of the psychotropic drug world and how psychologists wanted to be like regular doctors and have drugs to prescribe and literally created a handbook of mental disorders to make drugs for. And when did this all start? It started at a major conference in Puerto Rico one year after today's episode, 1967. The 60s are the rise not just of drugs in America, but the rise of psychotropic drugs. And I'm talking about prescribed psychotropic drugs. And this mother's little helper kind of encapsulates the thing of the time. It became trendy to be taking something. Today we've changed what those drugs are. But in general, while there are people who are legitimately helped by these types of medications, I would bet the majority of people taking them don't need them. And they're, being, they're doing harm to themselves by taking them. And it's gotten to a point where you have to understand, again, the thing called fiscal responsibility of a company. A company's job is to make money for its shareholders. Period. The end. Private, public, doesn't matter. It's the law in this country. So if you're a drug manufacturer and you've sold drugs for all the things you really need to sell drugs for, you still have a fiscal responsibility to sell more. Whether it's hiring good-looking girls as drug reps or good-looking guys as drug reps and setting them around the floor with doctors. Whether it's advertising, ask your doctor about. No matter what it is, you have a fiscal responsibility to keep doing it. Hey, making money is what we're all about here in America anyway, right? Well, I think the free market is a great thing. But I think the regulated market posing as a free market when it comes to our health is one of the deadliest things that's ever happened in America. And I will preface that with there are life-saving medications out there that are saving people's lives every day. It doesn't mean there's not life-altering and life-destroying medications out there. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of dope being prescribed to a lot of people that don't need it. This song was kind of the first thing I know of in, in, in pop culture that ever recognized that and happened all the way back in 1966. With that, this has been Jack Spiracle with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if Tom's gets you up or even if they don't. Through the busy day.
What a drag it is getting old.